That's good stuff. Happy Mother's Day. Man, you guys are lively. I'm loving it. Good to see you. Hey, pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, so great to be here this morning. Lord, we thank you for this time of worship. Lord, this time of collective awe and wonder in who you are. And Lord, I do pray for our mothers today. Lord, I thank you for them. Lord, I pray protection over them. And as Dana said, Lord, we pray for all of us who are sons or daughters of mothers. Lord, may today today be a day to honor them, to remember them. And Lord, may you be glorified in all of that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Guys, have a seat. So it sounds like you're doing well, right? Living the dream today? All right. That's awesome. So my name is Brian Herring. If we have not had an opportunity to meet, I serve as one of the pastors here at Spanish River. It's great to be with you. Today is Mother's Day, as we've said, but it's not the only major holiday this week. This past week, we also celebrated another pretty major milestone and holiday. Do you guys know what it is? No. <laughs> Cinco de Mayo is a good one, actually. I didn't think about that. Whoops. There's two other holidays. No, Star Wars Day, people. Come on. There you go. There's my nerds. What's up? May the 4th be with you. So my family, uh, there's four kiddos, my wife and I, and we, uh, when everything locked down and things got a little bit tight, we, uh, we decided to get into Star Wars. So we started watching Mandalorian, which is a popular show on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> And, uh, and from that, we ended up binging like everything Star Wars. We watched all the movies as a family. We watched the Clone Wars together. We watched Rebels. I realize my nerd is going through the roof, but it'll, it'll calm down. Just give it a second. So May the 4th was coming up, and I had built this up as this great family day for us, right? We all had matching t-shirts. We were going to do breakfast for dinner. That's like my kids' like favorite meal. So we had pancakes or we had waffles, eggs, the whole nine yards, fruit, everything, bacon. So I got home a little early and I had, I had it built up in my head. You ever have those like moments? Maybe it's a vacation or maybe it's like a dinner or you just have some event or something planned that you have fantasized how everything's going to go. It's going to be amazing, right? Well, that's what I had for this Tuesday and it went the exact opposite direction. And it started with the stupid bacon. I usually always do it in the oven. I was like, no, I'm going to pan fry it because I think it tastes a little bit better. I still have burn marks all over my arm for where it's splattered everywhere. Turns out that the episode, The Bad Batch, which came out that day, was actually 70 minutes long, not the normal like 20 to 25. Now, two of those little girls in that video, the ones with the uh, long straight blonde hair, the one with the maniacal laugh, yeah, (laughs) That's, 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 that's one of mine, all right? They don't sit for 70 minutes. <laughs> the little ones don't. And so we started this and, you know, there's grease all over me. Like, it was a mess. And then the young ones just were like, yeah, we're bored. And so they thought it would be a fun game to just annoy their siblings to the point that fights started breaking out all over the place. And it ended in this moment of, This is not one of my better moments, but I say this because I've talked to so many of you who have had similar moments where it was just like, I'm done. I'm done. You guys ruined tonight. I totally lost my temper and sent all of them to bed. And I was just done. But here's the thing. 
the second after they all went to bed, and my one daughter was really, she was bummed because she had looked forward to it too. And it was one of those moments where I just, I looked at myself and I was like, why do I get so bent out of shape about this stuff? And then the guilt starts to set in. And if you're a parent, you know this, or I don't even think you have to be a parent. This is just life sometimes. But it's just, I had this feeling of like, man, I'm just, I'm a failure at this. And this like feeling of just uh, being alone and this feeling of inadequacy as a father or as a parent. And I know for a lot of you moms, that feeling is very real as well. These moments of like, man, I cannot live up to the expectation of being a mother. Or I can't live up to the expectation that society has placed on me or how I'm supposed to act or I'm supposed to do my job or what this looks like or that looks like. And I had one of those moments where it was just like, man, I'm failing at this. This is something cool we were going to do as a family and it just fell flat and I felt alone. And it doesn't have to be in those moments where we lose our cool and sin enters in or just inadequacy enters in. But we can feel alone in a number of different ways. Look, just think about sickness. I have people in my family who have battled sickness for years. And if you've battled that, there's this feeling of just loneliness that begins to creep in in that. What about financial issues, right? First service, I said checkbook. And as I said that, I was like, nobody uses those anymore. All right. But like, let's say you're pulling up on online, like your bank account, and you're looking at this and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. That there's this feeling of weakness. There's this feeling of loneliness, an inadequacy that can kind of sometimes come over us. Rejection from loved ones, convictions. Think about biblical convictions that you have in a society that tells you, no, that's wrong, and that's backward thinking, and that's narrow mind. And you're like, this is what the Bible teaches. And there's this feeling of aloneness, or what about death? To have to put someone that you love and cherish and see them pass on. There can be be such a feeling of loneliness that creeps in in those moments. Loneliness really is a kind of universal experience that we see in this world. And really this side of eternity, loneliness is a consequence of sin. See, you and I were meant to be in a relationship with God. You and I were meant to find our security. We are supposed to find our fullness, our relationship, our identity in God and Him alone. Yet when sin broke that, it didn't just strain it. It broke that relationship. Loneliness not only crept in between us and God, but it also crept in horizontally. That has also impacted relationships with family members. That's impacted relationships with church people. That's impacted relationships in our work, in our neighborhoods. And we understand that, and these moments just kind of creep in. And it's, it's, it's the aloneness or the loneliness that can be spiritual, that can be emotional, relational, cultural. Look, we can't necessarily even escape this. But there's a passage we're going to look at today that speaks to this loneliness drama. If you have your Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 2. And what Paul is going to do here is he's going to enter into that spirit of loneliness and understanding. But he's also going to do something pretty amazing. He's also going to capture how the grace of Jesus Christ reconciles us, yes, not just to God, but to one another as well. So we're going to read this together. It's going to show up on the screens, but I encourage you, if you do have your Bible to open it up, or if you have your phone, pull it out. And we are in Ephesians chapter 2, picking up in verse 11. And we'll read to the end of the chapter, verse 22. 
This is the word of the Lord as recorded by the Apostle Paul as he is writing to a church in the city of Ephesus. To the believers in Ephesus he writes this, Therefore, verse 11, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, remember that you were, man, that's small, my eyes. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Oh no. (laughs) Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing walls of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, Thereby killing, killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off. Peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are built And built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there's a lot in this passage I'll be honest with you, there's a lot more in this passage that we don't have time to really dive into. See, Ephesus is a church that's made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. So you have people who are Jews, part of the family of Israel, descendants of Abraham, and you have Greeks or Gentiles, non-Jewish people as well. And they are struggling to get along. There's uh, recordings of how difficult it was for the Jewish people to really interact with people outside of their own kind. Outside in other non-biblical contexts, but ancient writings, one uh, one of the things that was recorded was that for most Jews, this was before Jesus, but at one point in history they considered Gentiles as fuel that God created for hell. So there wasn't like a great relationship there. They struggled with one another. And so now you have all of these Gentiles coming into the church who are accepting the message of Jesus and the gospel as Paul is proclaiming it as a missionary to the Gentiles. And and they're coming and he's like, hey guys, we got to bring this together. And there's good stuff in that. But Paul divides this really into three sections that I want us to look at. And on, on the point of these Gentiles who are coming in from a separated state, of the people of God, who are coming into and being grafted into the nation of Israel. What that looks like. When I say grafted into the nation of Israel, maybe you know what that means, maybe you don't. Uh, At Home Depot, you can still buy these every once in a while. They have something called a fruit cocktail tree. Have you ever seen these things? Oh, dude, they're awesome. They're five citrus trees that are grafted into one rootstock. 
So you get grapefruit, orange, tangerine, lemon, and a lime on one tree. So this, they've been doing this for thousands of years. Typically they do this when they grow grapes. You'll have one plant that has really good roots but horrible fruit. And another one that has really good fruit but horrible roots. So they'll take really good rootstock. It's resistant to, to bugs or disease. And they'll graft the better, the better fruiting plant to that rootstock. Well, they can do this with fruit trees as well. In Romans chapter 11, Paul says that this is what Gentiles are being grafted into. You and I are being grafted into, if we are not Jews or descendants of Abraham, spiritually, we are being grafted into the rootstock of Christ, God's people. He talks about that in Romans chapter 11. You can go and look at that. But they were once apart and now they are branches connected to God's family. And so he's walking through something similar here. The first part is verse 11 and 12. And in verse 11 and 12, what he's doing is he is using this word therefore. He's, he's presenting the problem and he says, look, this is what we once were. And we're going to look at that briefly, what we once were. But it's not just that Paul reminds these Gentiles who were alone and outside of God who they were. He says in verses 13 through 18... Well, this is what Jesus has done. He uses the very beginning of verse 13. He says, but now. He says, look, this is who you were. But now, look at what Jesus has done. We're going to spend a little bit more time there. And then we're going to close up in how he finishes this section off. Verses 19 to 22, he says, so then. So what now? What now? Well, what we are now becoming. Or what we have now become. See, we all still struggle with loneliness. We can all struggle with these moments of insufficiency or where we just feel like, man, it's not, it's not happening. And yet Paul is very clear to this group of Gentile believers. God is with you and he has drawn you near. Let's look at this first section real quick. Verses 11 to 12, and in particular I want to look at verse 12. So he's speaking to these Gentile Christians and he's saying, hey, you got to remember who you once were. Oftentimes, we're told to forget our sins. We're told to forget a lot in the scriptures. In fact, God himself forgets our sins. But Paul is clear to remind us, don't forget who you used to be. Because it gives you context for who you are now. So my wife and I have done a lot of work to our house. And one of the things that we do when we work on our house is we take lots of pictures of before and after, right? Why? So that we can remember what it used to be when we look at it now. In those moments, right, and everybody here I'm sure has had those. When you look at something that you've worked on, you're like, ah, I don't know if that really works anymore. Maybe we should change it. And then you pull out the pictures and you're like, no, it's great. So much better than it used to be, right? Or you look at pictures of yourself back when you were a lot younger, right? And you're like, oh, I used to be so well rested. Oh, I remember that. One day, all right? But there's these moments because what that does is that reminds us of what we used to be. And Paul here is saying, look, remember who you were before Christ. And now look at who you are. Understand what has happened in your life and what you have left and what you are becoming. That's good for us to do. In those moments when we're like, am I going anywhere? Is anything happening? Yeah, remember who you used to be. And if you can't tell the difference, that's a red flag. But you should be different. And look at what he tells these, these Gentiles. He says, look, at, at that time, verse 12, remember that you were separated from Christ. Divided from him. Alone. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. You were not grafted into 
the rootstock of God the Father. Okay? He continues on, having no hope and without God. This is the state of natural man. When I say natural man, this is the state of humanity in sin. Broken, divided, alone, separated, without hope in any way. When I was in school, you had to get straight A's to make the high honor roll. You could make honor roll with A's and B's. I was an honor roll guy, had plenty of B's. Um, I apparently didn't apply myself enough, so I didn't get straight A's. But uh, that was supposed to be funny. Okay, Um, we'll just keep moving along. But you had to get straight A's to make high honor roll. Well, typically, again, as I said, I made honor roll, but not high honor roll. But there was one time, one time I almost made high honor roll. And I had one B, and it was with a particular teacher that did not give extra credit. Because his philosophy was, it's not my job to grade additional work. You should have done well the first time. Which I don't blame him for. And now that I'm an adult, I'm like, that's awesome. But at the time, I wanted extra credit. Because I was so close to an A. I was so close to an A. I mean, I did everything I could think of. The school I went to used a seven-point grading scale. If any of you remember that. So 93 to 100 was an A. 85 up to 92 was a B, right? Now these punk kids today get this 10-point grading scale. All right, butch up, right? And so I'm sitting here with like a 92 point something and I'm like, please give me the A. But I didn't get it. And you know what? I didn't make high honor roll. See, high honor roll had a standard and the standard was straight A's. And I didn't make straight A's, so I didn't make the high honor roll. Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples in Matthew's gospel, he tells them, he's like, if you want to be okay with God, he says this, he says, you need to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's God's standard. God measures his own perfection against our sinfulness. Yet in the book of Romans, Paul, who writes another uh, letter to a church in Rome, says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, we come up short. And that, that, that has alienated us, that has separated us, that has left us alone without hope. And that's what sin has done. It's not just affected our relationship with God, but as we said before, it's uh, affected our relationship with others. In fact, in James chapter 2, verse 10, because some people will say, well, look, it's just one B. Or it's just, look, I'm doing well in other areas. James addresses this and he says, look, uh, chapter 2, verse 10. If you keep the whole law but stumble in one place, you are guilty of breaking all of it. And that's where we stand alienated, alone, strangers, without hope and without God, unable in any way to solve that issue. But he continues on. Look at what he says in verse 13. So he's, he's laid out. Remember, this is where you were, Gentiles. Remember, this is what your life looked like outside of the covenant of promise, he has said. But now in verse 13, in this, this way of saying, man, but the tide changes. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who once were far have been brought near. And not by anything you did and not by anything that I could ever do for you or anybody else. Look, our moms do amazing stuff for us. But they can't do this. They cannot save your soul. They cannot pay the price for your sin. It was Christ alone who did that. So there's this division. 
And so God, in order to separate that division, in order to repair that relationship, says, I am the only one that can deal with this. So Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth. He met God's standard of perfection. He made the high honor roll on a hundred point scale. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, in thought, in word, in deed. He willingly and obediently sacrificed his own life on the cross, shedding his own blood, taking death upon himself, sacrificing my sin. He was my substitute. He did that, drawing me into a relationship with God the Father when I recognized my sin, when I declared my need for Jesus and I placed my faith in him alone. And for those of you who have done the same, that is the hope that you have. So, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And again, it's not something that we can do. See, Paul is going to explain on this a lot further in not just how this repairs our relationship with God, but with others. He does that in verses 14 through 18. And I wish we could get into this. This is like a series and a half here, but we're not going to. But I do want you to understand one thing. In those verses, Paul lays out an additional nine action verbs in the Greek. Nine action verbs. But every single one of those verbs is... is um, the subject of every one of those nine verbs is Jesus. So understand this, looking at verse 14. It's Jesus himself who is our peace. It's Jesus who made us both one. It's Jesus who has uh, broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It's Jesus who's abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. It's Jesus that might create one new man in place of two. It's Jesus making peace. It's Jesus reconciling us both to God in one body. It's Jesus killing hostility. And it's Jesus who came and preached peace. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says that when we are pulled into the action, it is God who pulls us in. We acquire our identity, not by what we do, but by what is done to us. You don't acquire your identity in Christ because of something that you do. Your identity in Christ has been given to you. That's grace. You bring nothing to this but your sin. It is God who has opened your eyes and who has brought you to him. In verse 13 again. Who we once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But see, this is why we fall into loneliness. This is why, we, this is why I continue to struggle in these things. This is why I continue to struggle with inadequacy. Because you and I, what we typically will do is we will look for our identity. We will look for our security. We will look for our hope in our sanctification rather than in our justification. So one more time. We... Oftentimes we'll find our identity and we'll find our value or our security in our sanctification rather than in our justification. So what does that mean? Well, two theological terms that we have to make sure we all are on the same page for. Justification is the first one. Justification, it's a theological term that refers to God's once and for all, right? This is it. Once and for all declaration of forgiveness and pardon for sin. It's a judicial term, right? So think of God as a judge. And he's sitting up there on the stand. He's got the gavel. And there I stand, Brian Herring, in all of my sin, in all of my guilt, in all of my iniquity. And he is looking at me. But 
if I am justified in Christ, if I have confessed my sin and put my faith in what Jesus has done on the cross, where I have, where I have said, look, Jesus, I believe who you are. I trust who you are. I can't do this on my own. I believe and trust in you, right? Jesus, when that gavel comes down from God the Father, the verdict is no longer guilty, but it is pardoned. Um, you are forgiven, freed, and pardoned. The guilty verdict that your sin is transferred to Jesus. So I'm no longer guilty. But it's not just that I'm no longer guilty. It's actually more than that. It's that Jesus' perfection and his righteousness is now credited to me. So when God the judge looks at me, he no longer sees the guilt. He no longer sees the sin. He no longer sees the iniquity of Brian Herring, but he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. My sin has been crucified with Christ on the cross. My substitute has shed his blood in my place. And so now I am seen as righteous before God. That's your justification. In Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Paul writes to that church, since we have been justified, he uses the past tense, since we have been justified, it's done, it's over, we now have peace with God. So my sin has been forgiven. I'm clothed in the righteousness of God. That is done in the righteousness of Christ. But sanctification is the second term. And I think of sanctification as that this is, again, a theological term. It refers to our ongoing transformation to becoming more and more like Jesus. Right? Think of it like the stock market, right? You go up, up, but sometimes, you know, up. But it's this continual growth. But you know what? Sometimes we're on fire, man. Sometimes we are just we are memorizing scripture and we're reading and we're engaging and we're witnessing and we're growing in our faith. But then there's other seasons where it's, it's a desert. It's dry. But it is. There, there should be this continuous line, but much like the market, right? You go up three steps, down two steps, up three steps, down two steps. Or if it's crypto, up a million steps, down two billion steps, right? So, but you get what I'm coming at. And so the problem is, what we will typically do, and what I do, and I don't think I'm alone in this, is that we will find our identity in Christ, or our identity ends up being tied more to our sanctification than it does to our justification. And here's the problem when that happens. When we tie our identity in Christ to our sanctification, when things are doing great, what do we, man, I'm killing it, this is awesome. But what happens when that sin creeps back in? Or what happens when life doesn't work the way you think it's going to do? Or what happens when you don't heal the way you think you do? And then doubt starts to creep in and you begin to, wait, does God love me? Wait, is God still good? Am I even a Christian if I still struggle with this sin? How can I continue to get mad? I've been doing so well and then I, and I lose my temper again. What, what's going on? Paul is very clear here, and he is being very deliberate. Their identity is not in the growth. That God will take care of that. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Sanctification is happening, but it's a process. But your justification is final. It's done. It's paid for. You are a new creation in Christ. 
You are a son and you are a daughter of God himself who has drawn you next to him and walks with you. He is a friend, the proverb tells us, that sticks closer to you than any brother or any sister. But how quickly we forget that. And how often we have to be reminded, reminded, reminded. No, this is done. This is paid for. I can't slip into this self-righteous where I have to earn it. I have to do it. I have to do it. Because that, that's exhausting. That's depressing. And you will do nothing but live in defeat and despair and discouragement. But every morning we need to rise to our feet and declare that our lives and our souls have been justified by the blood of Christ. Our substitute, who not only paid the penalty for our sin on the cross, but defeated death in our place as well in his resurrection. That's, it's amazing to think about that. And what it does is it leads us to our final point, which is awe. And which is, okay, well, now what are we becoming? There was years ago, I read this article in the New York Times, and I saved it. Hey, hey for just a time as this. It's perfect. Check this out. Uh, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. I didn't even know that was a thing. But here you go. The Journal of Personality and Social Psychology provides strong empirical support that awe helps bind us to others. Awe, this is an article about those who, who regularly take in awe and wonder as a part of their life. So this is like watching the sunset. Sitting in the shade of a giant banyan tree. Looking out over a mountain range, holding a child, like these little moments that are just awe-inspiring and mesmerizing, right? And they go on and they say there's, there's strong empirical evidence to support the claim that awe helps bind us to others, motivating us to act in collaborative ways that enable strong groups and cohesive communities. So those people that share in a type of awe, this is why you have such strong communities in mountain clubs and in beach clubs and even yoga and stuff like that. Like people, it literally binds people together, they found out. Professor Keltner um, argued that awe is the ultimate collective emotion for it motivates people to do things that enhance uh, the greater good. Awe might help shift our focus from our narrow self-interest to the interests of people to which we belong. And it makes sense when you think about it. If I'm taking in a sunset, if I'm standing on top of a mountain, for the, it's a realization of just how small and insignificant I am. When I look up into the sky, you can't do this in Florida, but when you look up, if you've seen a black sky with the Milky Way draped across the sky, it is one of the most awe-inspiring sights because you realize just how insignificant you are. And what that does is it, it reorients yourself. And you find community in love and relationships with those around you. I mean, they've done entire studies on this. I've read a bunch of them. One of them found that people who regularly are motivated through awe and wonder are 40% more generous when it comes to giving. I'm telling you, next time I do a talk on tithing, I'm going to be showing videos of like mountain ranges and sunsets the whole time. Hey, hey, I'm just joking, but not really. All right, so, and this, it's no different than how Jesus laid it out. How did Jesus lay it out? He said, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. This means that you meditate on him. You love him. 
You grow in knowledge of him. And as your knowledge and your love grow for God, what you grow in the awe of the creator of all things that holds all of life together in the palm of his hand. And he died for you. And this sense of wonder and awe steps over you. And what happens? But you're able to do the second greatest commandment, which is to what? Love your neighbor as yourself. We're able to love our neighbor as ourselves when we understand the awe and majesty of who God is. When we understand our justification, and sanctification is great, but understanding and rooting ourselves in our justification, it's a fresh reminder of God's awesome grace that should fill us with this awe and wonder that not only binds us in the church, look at verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer strangers or aliens. But jumping down to verse 22. But in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are a community that is awed by the message of the gospel. And we find community in that and we find security in that and we find peace in that. But it's not just that it ends here. It motivates us to the greater good which is to take that message to a world that is so incredibly lonely. And that is desperately trying to find satisfaction in materialism, in accomplishment, in sexual exploits, in power. The list goes on and on and on. Look, I still struggle with it. You still struggle with it. But that's why we meet. To once again hear the awe and wonder of a God who loves us despite our sin. We raise our voices together in song, proclaiming it. We build community, we build trust, we hear that message again, and then we take it out to the world around us. Let those words sink in. You have gone from having no hope and without God in this world to a reconciling of your relationship with God and being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. What amazing grace. What amazing grace. Go in that knowledge and go in the knowledge, as I said earlier. You have a friend that sticks closer than a brother, is what the proverb says. A God who has drawn you close and no matter how alone you feel has justified you and has sent his spirit to indwell within you. And to those of you who haven't made that decision, let today be the day. Stop chasing what you're chasing. It will not give you the hope It will not give you the identity. It will not give you the freedom. It will not give you the forgiveness that you seek. Pray with me. Heavenly Father. Lord, strangers and aliens, devoid of hope, without God. But Lord, in your goodness and in your grace and in your mercy, you saw fit to not only enter into our world, but draw those of us who were dead in our sin into life with you, to those who would call upon the name of Jesus. Acts tells us to all those who call on your name, they will be saved. 
But Lord, how quickly we are to forget and how quickly we are to fall back into old habits. Lord, remind us that it is finished. Remind us that our identity is rooted in our justification, once and for all, done. Lord, as we meditate on that, may the awe and wonder of who you are build not only your church, but send us out to a world that is battling loneliness, battling insignificance, and is desperate to hear this message as well. Lord Jesus, may you be honored and glorified in all of this. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.